Welcome to the Vein Magazine Podcast, real discussions on venous disease and treatment. Episode number one, the ATTRACT trial. What are the practical takeaways? Real practical info for the interventional radiologist. The episode is hosted by Dr. Steve Elias, and we have the principal investigator on the ATTRACT trial, Dr. Suresh Vedantham, as well as Dr. Bill Marston, Dr. Ragu Kalori, and Dr. Darren Schneider. One year later, what did the ATTRACT trial not tell us, and where do we go from here? Okay, so we're going to you know, record some of our thoughts and feelings about the ATTRACT trial, but uh, I want to preface this by, by saying, Suresh, the ATTRACT trial and your great work to as almost as a stepping off point uh, as to uh, what what we may think about in the future and also clearly what what we have learned and maybe what we did learn uh, from from the trial itself so and that I kind of want a, an open discussion and, and not not the usual here's what the trial did here's what it said okay thank you we're done so I, I really want to first ask you all what did the attract trial not tell us <laughs> okay. But I think the thing is, any prospective randomized trial, it's always going to be a narrow set of things that it's really going to test. And so all we know from this trial is that all patients essentially with DVT from the femoral up through the iliac cannot be told that they'll do better if they're treated with a pharmacomechanical lysis. That's really the, the, the sole major outcome from the study. Right. But Bill, that's what it told us. What did it not tell us? Doesn't tell us anything else. <laughs> uh, Ragu, anything that it that it did not tell us? What it did not tell us, I believe, is um, interaction of you know cardiovascular system as a whole. I, you know, I believe that you know when you take Velalta score and probably apply that in congestive heart failure clinic, probably you'll get a ton of positive you know numbers in that too. What it did not tell us is whether these results are applicable for patients who are morbidly obese. What it did not tell us is whether a bunch of these people or, you know, whether, you know, someone with DVT and concomitant superficial venous insufficiency have any benefits with this. So, yeah, those, there, there are several, like um, Bill said, um, it showed one, but, you know, there are a lot of other things. It did not tell us. Uh, Darren? I, I think that all of us probably in our practices have been convinced that there have been patients we've had who have benefited from uh, pharmacomechanical uh, thrombolysis, patients with severe proximal uh, DVTs. So although in all comers, the way the trial was constructed from femoral all the way up through iliac, you could not show a benefit versus medical therapy. What it didn't show us is that since we all believe there are some patients who benefit to which subset or population of patients may benefit that we should continue to look at. Uh, and Suresh, you have the last word on this one. Sure. So, well, I can address a few things here. Um, you know, some of the important things would be, for example, uh, you know, what's troubling about this, obviously, is that even with all this subgrouping, these patients, so many of them got post-thrombotic syndrome. And how do we know who who's going to get PTS, right? So we're focusing on factors that relate to the anatomy, right? And where the clot is and things like that. But there are undoubtedly genetic factors that play a role here. The attract child did not have the budget and did not collect blood samples and that kind of thing. That's unfortunate. I think that, you know, the next trial we're going to do, uh, we're not going to let that one slip. Uh, so we can't do genetic testing really in these patients to identify, you know, what causes PTS? How do we get 
better at figuring out what are the other mechanisms involved because you've got two randomized trials now and neither one of them found less than 40% post-thrombotic syndrome even in the lice patients, right? And I, I actually think what the ATTRACT trial didn't tell us and, and also obviously any other trial, it didn't tell us why we can't do any better. I mean, really, with, with, with uh, DVT patients, I mean, you know, in both arms, it was 49%, 51% got a post-thrombotic syndrome of some manner, you know, some uh, degree. And, I mean, if we were treating a disease, it, it, another disease that we only got 50% of the people better, I mean, that's a little scary. So in my mind, it really did not tell us why we can't do any better. And so, I mean, Bill, can we do better? Or, or is this just something that we just accept? People get DVT. It's, they're going to get some element of PTS in 50% of the time. Can, can we do any better? I think the key thing here is what Suresh said about all the other data that they're going to bring to us. My initial answer, answer was sort of facetious in the sense that the pure statistical primary outcome is only a very small slice of what this study and all the data it's going to provide to us. At the end of the day, you know, we can't treat people by prospective randomized trials. We've got to treat them as the art of being a physician. And using all this secondary data that's going to come out, hopefully will tell us better which patients really might benefit from uh, aggressive intervention and who won't. I mean, Darren, is there anything we can do to do better in these patients to get them maybe down to only 25% get some form of PTS? Yeah. And, if, and, if we can't, and if we can't now, what do we need in the future to do? We need to treat this disease in a better way. You know, I think we need to really, you know, figure out what are the best practices here? You know, what are the ideal techniques if we're going to do pharmacomechanical thrombolysis, uh, if we are going to be uh, stenting these patients, which are the ideal anatomies and clinical circumstances and clinical factors to, to intervene on? I mean, should we only be uh, intervening on the patients who stand, you know, the greatest chance to get a really severe PTS? Uh, are those the ones that are going to benefit? So those are the things that we've got to sort out. I don't think that there's no hope. I think that this is the beginning here and that, you know, we really have to refine our techniques. We really have to refine our clinical judgment and selection for who we treat. I mean, in this trial, like Suresh pointed out, we treated all comers, obese, CHF patients, uh, you know, a variety of anatomies when you included patients basically with femoral popliteal DVT as well. So, Raghu, you want to add anything to this? So, you know, we all have seen, you know, people come in, we swear that it's post-traumatic syndrome, we do venous insufficiency test, we do, you know, IVIS, we do angiogram, we'll find these patients who we swear that are post-traumatic syndrome or venous insufficiency-like patients, but everything turns out normal, right? We all have seen that. And it's not uncommon, you know, I see these patients every single day of the working week, uh, venous insufficiency patients, and at least one to two a month, it's completely normal, right? 30 BMI is great, but we living in Midwest, Darren and, you know, Steve, different story, but Bill and, you know, Suresh, 30 is normal in the Midwest. So, you know, I mean, this morning I saw 270 BMIs. So, uh, you know, what I'm trying to say is I think I, after this trial, Suresh and his team had this powered for 30% PTS rates. And with a reduction of 10%, correct? Am I correct? Or 20%? It was yeah, it's a one-third reduction from an from an assumed control arm of 30% of of 30%, which turned out to be a bit low, obviously, right? So the power, so the power was plenty. 
Exactly. The power yeah. was plenty. Design was perfect in my mind for the contemporary, you know, design when you started out, Suresh, maybe 2005, 2006, it was perfect. Okay. Couldn't have gotten any better. So why with close to 50% of femoral popliteal disease involved, why is there 47, close to 50% post-thrombotic syndrome? To me, it tells me that probably open vein is not all enough. There's probably something more to it. That's my take with the whole thing. Although we got it powered, you know, very conservatively, you know, done excellent trial, we still have 47, 49% PPS, even though we have femoropopliteal disease involved. You would expect that PTS rates are going to be lower if you involve femoropopliteal disease, right? So why is it so high? What I learned from this really is open vein, open vein hypothesis probably doesn't work. There's a lot more to it, and we need to understand more. It's not enough, is what I'm saying. There's something it's just part of the... It's just part of the story. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that is very clear. And that's true from the Covent trial too, right? 41% of the lice patients got PTS, right? So there's obviously other mechanisms at play that we just haven't really worked out yet, and they also need to be investigated. I want to ask, what do, what do you all think about the, the definitions that we use, Velautiscore or whatever, to define what, quote, PTS is? Do we need to come up with a better way of really measuring, you know, PTS and how it really affects the patient, or are we comfortable with, with the measurement tools that we have uh, currently? And, and Darren, maybe you could give me some ideas about that. I mean, is this as good as we can get? Is this a realistic, you know, real life thing for the patient to fill out the score of VCSS for DVT? I'm not talking about for venous disease in general. But I think that could be, you know, one of the issues that that was the endpoint here. Maybe it's, you know, too sensitive for certain things. Maybe that's why we have such a high percentage of patients uh, positive for PT, uh, PT, uh, PTS. I mean, I think that, you know, there, there was a signal in some places that in terms of looking at the incidence of uh, moderate to severe PTS that was, uh, that was reduced. And, you know, getting to, to, you know, the comment that open vein is not, not enough. I mean, I guess I'm getting off topic here, but uh, you know, there's, there's other issues with compliance with compression therapy and the post-treatment uh, modalities that it may be that you need the procedure and you need something else, but maybe we need to also, getting to your question, maybe we need to be able to measure it better when we're talking about PTS and how much benefit or lack of benefit patients are having with our interventions. I think this is another place where the uh, study will help us out because we've measured quality of life, we've got Velalta, we've got VCS, we can start to look at what really matters for quality of life and is do we need a better cut point or a better scale? I mean, sometimes I, I mean, I do all my VCSS and everything on my patients, but also a question I ask them all the time is, hey, how are you doing? Are you able to do whatever you want to do in your life? And if they say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all right, I don't care what the VCSS says. And I think it's, it's such a, that's such a gross way of looking at it, but I, actually what, what, um, Suresh is saying, if on a daily basis, if you ask a patient, if they say, hey, doc, I feel great, I don't care what the VCSS is or the Villalta is. Like you said, Bill, it's about what that guy or that woman or whatever wants to do in their life. It doesn't matter what that number is on a Villalta score. All right, let, let me change a little bit, guys. Let me talk about, we, we mentioned briefly about, about technique. What do we need if we assume, let's assume part of, and I'll, I'll say this, Part of improving a patient with the DVT is to get the vein open. 
what do we need from a technical viewpoint that's better than what we have now? In other words, what, what modifications, what new technologies do we need to get more veins open and to stay open? And, and so, Darren, let, let me go to you because you're, you're big on technique and you do a lot of this stuff. What, what is lacking in the technologies we have now and what do we need? I think there's still a lot of room to have a better uh, thrombectomy device uh, for these large veins that we're, we're treating. I mean, when we start talking about some of the angiojet catheters and devices like that, that we, yes, we can remove thrombus, but how, you know, how complete are we able to achieve thrombus uh, uh, removal in a large uh, venous system? A lot of times we're having to resort to the adjunctive uh, lysis uh, dripping patients. And so, I think there certainly is room for improvement there. Devices also that can do it without damaging valve leaflets and with uh, minimal trauma to the veins themselves while still being able to completely evacuate thrombus. I think that, that those may be some of the keys uh, going forward. So there's definitely room to improve and iterate on, on the devices that, that we have. And I think even beyond devices, there's room to uh, standardize and optimize techniques. I mean, I think when this trial got started, I mean, we have to remember this trial started in you know, when, when did this get going? I mean, we started putting things together in 2005, 2008. This was really early in a lot of period, people's experience in, in, in some of these techniques. So I think there was a lot, probably a lot of variability in devices that were used uh, and even the actual technique that was utilized. Uh, Suresh, let me just ask a, a side question. Did some centers get better results than others? And I'm, I'm particularly talking about technique. In other words, were some people better at getting clot cleared versus others? We, we, didn't, we didn't do any kind of analysis like that. Wouldn't that be nice that you could ask this guy or this woman, hey, how come you got this clot cleared? What are you doing different than another person? And we can learn from this. We can all get to be the best of the best that was in your trial. Sure. I think you're making assumption, though, that the uh, amount of clot removed is, is solely due to the operator, right? There's a number of factors that might be influencing that that go beyond the operator. Yeah, I know. And if you're talking about comparing with these kinds of numbers, you have to be a little bit careful about over-interpreting what you're, what you're comparing. Now, we are, you know, going to be reporting some specific techniques out. For example, the use of the power pulse technique, the use of the trellis, which is not really that relevant anymore. Uh, the trellis isn't. Uh, but we will be talking specifically about those in future papers. But I will say this. I mean, the amount of clot removed was very much consistent with what's been seen in the literature since the start of this procedure. In terms of technical refinements that occurred after we started doing this, I think the one thing might be IVUS, you know, intravascular ultrasound, was used sporadically by some people but near the end of the trial. But I don't think most people had it as a routine practice. And, and I think also IVUS is just used more for chronic than acute patients in general, you know? And so, um, you know, that's probably the one thing, but that's not something that had ever been used before really regularly either, right? right. So, um, you know, that might help a little bit in identifying a few things that might've been not seen probably, but, uh, but that's probably the one technical thing that really changed, you know, over the last seven, eight years that maybe in a more meaningful way. Phil, talk to me a little bit about technique and what, what are we lacking currently in technique and which, what do you feel is the optimal technique for clot removal? Well, I think the biggest challenge we have right now is definitely, you know, clot that's a little older. I mean, if the, if the clot's really fresh, so there within the first few days, you can do anything. I mean, there's three or four different methods that are going to clear that pretty quickly. But we see a lot of patients, and it's, it's going to probably be more based on the results of this trial, where 
They get sent out of the ER. They show up at their primary two, three weeks later, and they're very symptomatic. They're like, you got you to do something. And then they show up in our office it's three or four weeks later, and we're not very successful then. And so a technique that works on that older clot is really going to help us out with these patients. I think, Suresh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but those patients who are more symptomatic early on tend to have a higher rate of PTS. There was a little bit of a trend in that direction. Yeah, it didn't reach statistical significance, but you know there was a trend that the people that had the highest Velalto scores up front, you know, might have done a little bit better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So now, Ragu, once those of us who are surgeons here, interventionalists here, clear out the clot, what is it that that medically you feel is going to optimize that patient for for getting the best results? I mean, what are the things we we need to keep in mind? So every major trial, a track trial and SOX trial, looked at compression therapy also. Everyone got the compression socks. Uh, that's not how vascular medicine folks are trained. We are trained to put medium stretch compression wraps, I'm sure the vascular surgeon is the same way, to reduce the size of the leg first and then put them in the compression socks. Ideal studies, they study ongoing. I think it's done now. Uh, it's a Danish study, I believe where they did the same as opposed to the SOX trial and the ATTRACT trial. When you fit somebody with a compression sock, you're fitting them with that circumference, right? You know, mm-hmm. that compression sock is not going to bring it down anymore. It just does not make physiologic sense. So what we train our nurse practitioners is to, you know, wrap the leg from the foot all the way to the thigh for at least two to three weeks until they come back uh, to see us, at which point, then we, you know, measure them for the compression side. It makes sense that, you know, you need to get that inflammation down, the swelling down, that needle lymphatic pressure down, and then, you know, get them into compression socks. Again, that's the way the ideal study is, is designed. I'm just waiting to see the results. They're not out yet. And that kind of moves into another question that I have uh, written down here, which is, if we were starting a trial today to answer the same question that, that you tried to answer, uh, you know, way back when, uh, what is it, how, would, how should we design the trial now to answer the same question, which is, what's better, lysis or anticoagulation? So I, so I think from an eligibility standpoint, I think that you obviously you want to focus on people with the most significant, you know, we'll get the specific data out of a tract, but I think that it would be people who have common femoral or iliac uh, thrombosis and who have the most severe symptoms, you know. Um, I think that that's going to be important, really. Um, I think that um, uh, in terms of designing uh, the trial, I think you still want to randomize design. I think you would look at severity, disease severity, um, and that could be measured in different ways. But um, health-related quality of life is a very important part of that, I think. Uh, and when we subgroup that outcome, I'll be very interested to see what we find. Um, but I think that it's going to have to be severity-based, not necessarily a binary kind of uh, outcome. Let me challenge the, the model itself. Um, so you know, we had a SCAR trial, which is a randomized control trial. Then we went to EVRA trial, which we are all eagerly waiting, which is a single arm prospective study as all of you. Would any of you start enrolling patients if we, um, you know, start a clinical trial to treat patients 
uh, with Coumadin and heparin and Coumadin on one arm and nothing in the other arm, other arm. There's only one trial for heparin, you know, that randomized patients, 16 and 19 patients, and there was no randomized controlled trial for so ACCP guidelines up until the seventh, seventh guidelines still used Coumadin and heparin as grade 1A, and I think eight turned it down to whatever it is now. So what I'm trying to get at is, you know, when there is no equipoise in the treatment, you know, when we know that one benefits the other, I don't know if randomized controlled trial is the way to go. Uh, that's whatever I was doing because, you know, Eshkar failed. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not a trialist, but it just does not make sense to me that, you know, the attract trial enrolled every consecutive young patient old patient coming in with iliofemoral BPT. There is that enrollment bias of, I don't know what this patient is going to be, let's enroll them in this trial. That's what Coral, that's how Coral died, that's how Press died, you know, interventions. Uh, so, and, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is, but uh, should there be another EVRA kind of trial for a track to follow? I, I don't know. Yeah, I think we need to first, uh, uh, you know, complete the subset analyses and attract to learn as much as we can. I think we need to, to know really what is the appropriate target population, because I think the fact that we didn't find a difference with the attract trial suggests that treating all comers is not the answer. And there's and we got to identify who the population is who's likely to benefit. And I think we know that and where we at least have signals in that direction that that those are going to be the patients with the most severe DVTs with the biggest chance of getting PTS. So it's going to be those patients with iliofemoral DVT, and they really need to have significant pain, and they also need to have significant swelling, I think, to derive maximal benefit uh, from the uh, intervention. And to Bill's point, I think we also need to make sure that we're getting these patients early when we're likely to benefit by removing the thrombus and able to do it effectively. And then I think we have to couple that with best practices that we can learn from the trial as well. So um, we need to, to standardize how we're doing imaging. If IVIS is the best way to image, then IVIS needs to be incorporated into the trial. And then I think we need to standardize, you know, how we access the patients um, uh, to gain our percutaneous access. Uh, what are the best techniques and devices to use for mechanical thrombectomy and make sure that that's standardized. And then that, that also has to go for, I think, the, the uh, uh, post-procedure treatment. And I know that that was done in a tract and Suresh did a great job uh, with, with those things, trying to standardize everything, but, but we've learned a lot since then. I think we need to take, you know, those things that we've learned and then really target the population who we think is going to benefit with the best practices that we think are going to be effective and then test that. I think, I think that's a good summary. Bill, what, what are you thinking? Well, I think that the data, as Darren said, so the sub-analyses and the specific reasons why patients failed is going to be critical. So if we find that they're rethrombosing, then we need to do a better job with the outflow. We need to maybe use IVUS routinely. And think about it, in five years from now, we'll probably have a whole different slew of devices and methods that we can use. If they're failing because of reflux, then probably earlier treatment, and then maybe we have a reflux device we can use in the future. But I would look at the trial in that sense that you're going to have a whole new wave of therapies uh, not too long from now to employ. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, to me, to kind of summarize it, I, I mean, we've, we've broken it up into identifying those people 
pre-treatment that we really feel based upon what, what the attraction trial is going to tell us that are really going to benefit. And then standardizing the treatment uh, and saying, look, if you're going to enroll in this trial, this is what you need to do when you have a patient that's a candidate to be randomized. And, and if you're going to do pharmacomechanical thrombolysis, this is the way you do it. And um, this is what you need to, you know, whether it's IVUS or whatever the heck it is. And then post-treatment, to Raghu's point, is the type of compression and post-treatment care. And, and I think, you know, standardizing it to what, as Darren said, the best practices is something that maybe can narrow the focus. And uh, Suresh, I think what the ATT&CK trial is going to identify, and everybody said this, is give us the people that are really going to be the best candidates and let us not waste our time on those people that are not good candidates. And let us really focus on those people that we can truly, truly help and standardize the care going forward as to what we need to do for those people that we can help so that hopefully we're not talking about a 49 or 51% rate of you know, post-thrombotic, we're talking about a 25% or 20% rate. But, but maybe it's also not the, uh, you know, also how we're measuring it as well, like yeah. everybody commented i mean maybe it's not a lot of but maybe we need to know you know the time to resolution of symptoms when how soon people were able to return to work in normal daily activity were they able to to return to work versus not being able to return to their uh, to their normal work i mean that may be important in some minor differences in the velata scale it's all coming too <laughs> that you know the secondary analyses cost effectiveness cost all that stuff is you're going to get that soon. Um, I'll, mention, I'll mention one other factor that we didn't talk about, which is that, you know, what shocked me in this study is that, you know, the iliofemoral group didn't do better, right, with, with lysis. And one thing is that remember that in a study like this, when you're enrolling them, we're using iliofemoral as a surrogate for lots of clot or extensive disease, right? And really, though, if you had a one centimeter clot in your common femoral vein, you're iliofemoral. If you have a 20 centimeter clot in your femoral popliteal segment, you're fempop. Uh, right. And so you got to be a little careful. To, and remember that, you know, in this study, the whole point is that this is a first line treatment population. It's not like what we get in our clinical practices where people, where the medical physicians screen out the ones that respond to anticoagulation, then send us the ones that don't, right? That's what our practices are, right? In this study, though, we enrolled people that really get treated with medical therapy, the clot goes away, or their symptoms totally resolve, and they never get referred to us, right? right. So I think that in addition to iliofemoral fem pop as segments, I think that really getting a better sense as to, you know, what clot extent predicts, you know, uh, predicts PTS, doesn't predict PTS, showed a bigger, you know, I think those kinds of questions can help us, you know, pare it down further and uh, get to a, so hopefully, I hope there will be another randomized trial, but I hope it's focused uh, really solidly. We have a really solid target for the next one. Yeah, and I, and, I think that, and I think that's one of the points that comes out of the ATTRACT trial is that you are going to you know, give us data as to where we really need to focus on which patients we really need to think about helping and which ones don't even think about it. Just put them on anticoagulation and they're going to do just as well as if you if if did something. And so, think about endovascular stroke care as well. I mean, the first big NIH trial was negative. Two other trials were negative, okay? Right. The thing was dead. Right. Uh, then the devices got innovated. They decided, okay, what's the anatomic treatment? Uh, you know, who should you be treating? And then boom, three positive trials, and now it's the standard of care. So hopefully people will, someone else will come around and uh, continue this and really use the data, you know, effectively to do that. 
So to that point, Suresh, is there a way that you think from all the data from this trial that you can classify patients, not anatomically, but based on the extent of thrombus burden? Well, I think the challenge, of course, is that iliac segment, right? All, you know, the, the common femoral and femoral are easy, but I think you'd have to have all the patients imaged, right? Using some type of cross-sectional or whatever imaging up front. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and in the ATTRACT trial, we don't have any assessment of the iliac vein in the control arm patients, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they got ultrasounds and they got in the study, basically. Uh, so we don't really have that. You know, we have common femoral assessments, but we don't have iliac vein assessments. So it makes it a little bit harder to, to do that. Hey, Sarisha, quick question. Uh, knowing what you know from a track trial, what would be your, if you had to redesign it, A, what would be your primary endpoint? And B is, do you think like stroke uh, studies, would NIH eventually sponsor another, uh, you know, a track two trial, if you will? I think, um, I, you know, obviously, you know, with NIH is always hard, but I, I think they would, first of all, because I think the awareness is there. I think even our project officer recognized that, you know, if you look at those secondary outcomes, God, we've got a whole data report, and you look at these secondary outcomes, everything related to symptom severity, it leans one way. Now, the problem is that we're dealing with TPA, and so leaning one way or having a small difference ain't enough to say you can treat 100,000 people with lysis, you know, every year and take the complications, right? But I think that clearly there's something to it. I don't. I think they can see that as well. So I think in the right scenario, if someone proposed a great study, I think they would, um, you know, but, um, you know, it has to be done, obviously, and it has to be targeted and, you know, and, uh, but I, I don't think it's closed. And I wish industry would do it, although I realize that with industry, it's, it's probably a, a harder, heavier lift at this point, at least. What about the primary endpoint? tougher, you know, because I want to see more data as well, you know, because we've been looking at these symptom scales, but we all know when you look at the elements of those symptom scales, you know, you're like, you know, pins and needles or, you know, you're, you're kind of like, well, yeah, they count, but I mean, because there are other ways to go about it and just say, should we just look at pain, you know, or, you know, or something like that, right? Or should we just look at health-related quality of life? Um, now, the, now, the NIH is not fond of that sort of thing because they, they see a quality of life measure, any patient reported measure as connoting, you know, in an open label study as bias, right? Unless you can blind the participants, then you've got this potential for reporting bias. So they don't really like that. And, and for example, for C-TRAC, the next trial we're doing, we proposed quality of life as our primary endpoint and they nixed it, you know. Um, we had to come back with something else. But, uh, you know, but I, at present, we're sort of stuck with what we've got, you know. But I do think that experience sampling is the way to go, you know, that needs to be explored and validated, you know. And I hope someone kind of takes that bull by the horns and does it. In in the end, and really, I mean, I don't know about, about you all, but when I see patients, whatever intervention I've done on them, I mean, my question to them is, you know, how's it going? How do you feel? And if they say fine or great, I, that's enough for me. I don't care what the number says. You know, as Bill said, the guy who wants to climb a mountain may be different than the person that just wants to, be able to go shopping and, and get their groceries. And to me, I don't know if we have, we have some health-related quality of life issues, but I mean, measurements, but it's, it's almost such a simple question that we sometimes make too complicated. But that was my last question, which is- oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to preempt you there. <laughs> no, that, that, that's good. I'm glad somebody else is thinking like me. You know, you're exactly what I was going to ask everybody is, what 
can we, we, those of us here, give to the everyday practicing, you know, IR, vascular, interventionalist, whatever, what are the practical suggestions that we can say, here's where we feel you should intervene, here's where we feel you don't need to intervene, and here's where we don't think you should. And you, you clearly outline your thoughts about where you think we should intervene. From a practical viewpoint, you see a patient, what are those patients are going to say, I want to intervene, or what are those patients going to say you're not? I think Darren got it pretty much right. It, you know, it's the younger, more active, and young doesn't mean age, it's young in terms of their activity. The, right. the patient has a lot to lose by getting significant PTS. And then you got to really do a good job of consenting them. They've got to understand what the options are. I think the, the uh, good thing from the, the trial is that the rate of major bleeding was quite low. It was higher than the control group, but it was low. So you can yeah. give them that information, but they got to understand that there are other complications other than bleeding that can occur. But if they're committed and they tell you, Doc, I want you to get that stuff out of there, which a lot of them do, those are the patients that, that I would treat. Regu? Yeah, the same thing. Young iliofemoral DVT with uh, uh, low bleeding risk. Yes, uh, although the bleeding risk, uh, the bleeding rates compared to cabin trial have been quite low. Uh, uh, with the attract trial, it's going to be lower with the uh, you know the, the newer thrombectomy devices. Hopefully, uh, that can debulk and you know use less lytics. So yes. Right. All right, Suresh. Don't tell me anything about the trial. Tell me about the next patient tomorrow that you see that has a, a iliofemoral DVT. What, what is the one that you're gonna intervene on and what is the one that you're gonna just put on anticoagulation? So, so severe symptoms after probably about five days of anticoagulation, less than 65 years of age, low bleeding risk with clot in the common femoral vein or above. Um, but I think the key point there was that I'd anticoagulate first for at least a few days, uh, knowing that some people just do melt their clot, you know? Uh, many don't, but but some do, and sometimes it's a shorter clot than you think. Um, and uh, if that if that's the case, then maybe that patient doesn't need lysis, you know. Uh, so really, it's more of a second line use. You know, it's for first line. It's really if they have acute limb threat. Um, but for the most part, I see no reason not to anticoagulate people for a few days first. All right, good. All right, so so everybody, I mean, we're we're in, we're into the the hour and stuff. And first of all, I want to tell you, I mean, Suresh, I mean, your trial, you know allowed us to, to have this entire conversation uh, for this hour. And, and all of us think it's just absolutely great what you did and, and the effort uh, that you put into it. And, and I want to thank everybody else and Suresh for all of the, you know, your, your theoretical, but, but also the, the practical thoughts about the trial and, and what it told us, and then practical thoughts about how to manage you know, at, at this moment in time um, acute DVT in, in patients. I, re I really want to thank you guys. I mean, I think it was a great discussion, and, and I think people can get a lot, a lot out of this. All right, so thanks, thanks a lot to everybody, and, and, and happy holidays. Thanks for listening. If you like this discussion, then you'll love Vein Magazine. Check out veinmagazine.com for more info.